Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Sarah Manguso is the author of seven books, including Ongoingness, The Guardians, and The Two Kinds of Decay. She lives in California. Susan Steinberg is the author of Spectacle, Hydroplane, and The End of Free Love. She is the recipient of a United States Artist Fellowship, a National Magazine Award, and a Pushcart Prize. She teaches at the University of San Francisco. Please welcome Susan and Sarah to the Skylight Stage. Can you hear me? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming out on a debate night. I very much appreciate that. None of us want to miss that debate. So, right? <laughs> it was like a basketball game, the debate, like out of bars here. Is that an LA thing? I don't know. I don't feel like I see that as much in San Francisco. Um, so I'm gonna read, this is a novel. Um, as it turns out, and I'm gonna read, <laughs> which I can talk about more. Um, and it's in sections, and um, each, there are 14 sections and there are seven titles, and so each title belongs to two sections. And I'm just gonna read the third, I believe it's the third one in here, um, that I don't think I need to set up anything, I think it'll just set itself up. Um, and it's, the section's called Liars. And it's about 14 and a half minutes long, so I'll try to read faster. Um, our father says not to say, gone to shit. When people ask, and they will, our father says, you should not say, gone to shit. But the guys were staring down into the water. The girls were holding each other's arms. They were screaming into each other's hair the way those girls all would. It was total shit, my brother says. Our father says, what did I say? We're in our father's study. Our father's study is a replica of our father's other study. But this one, because it's at the shore, has seascapes on the walls. It has old maps on the walls. Our father's other study, because it's in the city, has pictures on the walls of the city. Our father and my brother are sitting in leather chairs. They're the same kind of chair as the chairs in our father's other study. They're each on one side of the desk. I'm sitting on the floor. Our father says, were you drunk? Were you high, our father says. Our father is being a certain way we've never liked. There's nothing to do when he's being like this. So my brother just sits there, arms folded across his front. Our father says not to say he was high. Not even a little, our father says. My brother looks at me like our father is such a dumbass. He looks at me like what does it mean to be a little high? There's no such thing as a little high. You're either high or you're not high. Our father says people are going to ask. They'll ask, he says, what you were doing. They'll ask, he says, what you were on. So he says to say it was just a party. Just a party, he says, with friends. But my brother says we wouldn't call it a party. No one would call it that, he says. You don't know what you're saying, he says. 
My brother is right that we wouldn't use the word party. A party is a different thing, a structured thing. This we would just call hanging out. This we would just call partying. So I say to our father, the word you want is partying. Our father looks at me for the first time today. He looks at me like, where did you even come from? Still looking at me, he says to my brother not to use the word partying. Partying, says our father, implies something other than a party. Partying, he says, is not the same thing as a party. People, our father says, have already begun to talk. And these people, our father says, and shakes his head like you better watch it. This is one of our father's tricks for wearing people down. We've fallen for this trick before, and people at the boathouse too have fallen, and people at his business too. They call him boss, and they call us Mr. and Miss. One day, my father's business will be my brother's. So for now, my brother, our father says, needs to straighten up. He needs to get his act together, our father says. He needs to learn to fake it, he says, the way the people here all do. But my brother says there's nothing to fake. He wasn't even there when it happened, he says. He was pissing in the trees, he says. And when he got back to the dock, everything, he says, had gone to fucking shit. Our father is staring my brother down. He says, why didn't you piss in the water? Guys always piss in the water, he says. And people are going to ask, he says, why you had to piss on a tree. He looks at me like, what the hell is wrong with your brother? I look at him like, how the hell do I know? My brother says, I didn't have to piss on a tree. He says, I just didn't want to piss right there, not in front of the girls, he says. Excuse me, he says, for not taking out my fucking dick in front of the girls. I realize my brother is being serious, that nothing could be more serious than this. I mean, we're talking about a girl who drowned, but we're talking without any feeling. So I'm not yet feeling is what I'm saying. And I'm immature, I'm also saying. So I'm too immature not to laugh at the word dick. I can't not laugh at fucking dick. Our father looks at me again. He says to my brother, why is she here? He says to my brother, tell her to get the hell out. This is another one of our father's tricks. He's trying to get my brother to take his side in a war against me. My brother has fallen for this one before. So many times they've laughed in my face. They've made me feel like the lowest thing. But today our father's trick won't work. My brother's head is somewhere else. He's turned to face the window and it's here he'll face from this point on. Last night, my brother didn't come home. None of us even noticed. We just went to bed, woke in the morning, sat at the table. Then my brother walked in looking like he'd been dug up from the dirt. Our father said, well, look who's here. My brother said nothing, went to his room. Our father went back to eating. But you could tell there was something up. You could tell by the speed at which my brother was moving the quiet way he closed his door. Tonight I'll find out how, how my brother after wandered around all night. I'll find this out from one of my brother's friends. He'll say my brother sat in people's boats. He sat in trees in people's yards. They found him at the market late, lying in the empty lot. I'll ask if he was sleeping, but who cares if he was, my brother's friend will say. Now my brother is looking at something past the window, like something he wants to move toward, 
like he'll step right through to some other world, and I've dreamed this too, some holy world, and I've wanted it bad. Now I'm worried that my brother is done, that our father is too, that we'll leave the room and never get back to this night. But my brother says I can prove I wasn't on the dock. He says I remember the tree I pissed on. It had a giant knot, this tree, he says, and I pissed, he says, on that giant knot. At first I imagined the tree, the knot in the tree like some kind of face. Then I imagined the girl who drowned. She's the only local girl there. The local girls hang out on the jetty. They don't hang out on the dock. The other girls want her to leave, but she's too fucked up, so she's doubled over laughing. No, she's doubled over crying. Now she's falling down, now falling in, and I should be feeling something. But it's like watching a movie of a girl who drowned, a movie of guys talking about a girl. You know what you sound like, our father says. You sound like a liar, he says. He says this is what liars sound like. This is another trick we know. My brother should just ignore it. But he says, fuck you. I'm not lying, he says. And our father says, I'm not saying you're lying. I'm saying, our father says, that you sound like a fucking liar. Our father and I were at the table when the cop knocked at the door. Our father told me to go somewhere else, but I stayed right where I was. So the cop and our father walked outside. I could still hear some of what they said. The cop said it was late. The kids were on the dock. The girl was in her underwear. Our father said her underwear. Then they walked away farther across the lawn. The thing is, we often swim in our underwear. We also swim in nothing. It depends on who's on the dock and what our bodies look like and what our underwear looks like. So I imagine how this girl would have swum. I mean, was she stripping down to nothing or had she stripped down as far as she meant to strip down? I mean, did she go into the water before she meant to go in? Like what she pushed is what I mean. Tonight I'll ask my brother's friend what really happened. He'll laugh and mess up my hair. Just tell me, I'll say. Just tell me, he'll say, in a voice that's supposed to sound like mine. Then he'll wrestle me to the grass. I've seen our father wear my brother down for less than this. The smallest scratch on the car, not walking the dog. I've seen him bring my brother to tears for so much less. But my brother is back in that other world, and now I'm part there too. And I could stay there too. I could stay there forever, pretending. In the future, I'll feel it all. It'll start on a night this summer. I'll be walking past the dock with some kids, and I swear I'll see her ghost. So I'll scream, and the kids will say, what the fuck? And I'll point and say, it's her and they'll throw me into the water for being fucked up. Now our father is looking at me. Now he winks at me, and this means something. It means my role has changed. He says, what the hell is wrong with your brother? What guy, he says, would leave the girls to piss on a tree? What guy, he says, and I don't yet realize what he's asking me to do? I mean, I realize he wants me to take his side in a war against my brother but I don't yet realize he wants me to objectify these girls, to imagine these girls as solely bodies, and to imagine these girls as solely bodies. I must imagine my own body as something else, like a field covered in snow, like a spread of clouds, a pile of dirt. 
So forgive me for where I go with this. Forgive me for the crazy shit now going through my head, for thinking I'm now our father's son, that the business one day will be mine, that people will call me boss, that I'll never again be miss. Forgive me for forgetting we're talking about an actual girl who drowned. In her underwear, I say and laugh. What kind of guy, I say. Tonight I'll get too fucked up. My brother's friend will tell me things, like that everyone was on the dock, like that my brother was on the dock. And the girl had gotten way too wild. So what happened, I'll say. She fell, he'll say. That's it, he'll say. And she drowned. I have a chance now to be useful, to pull the truth out of my brother. And if the truth is my brother was there on the dock, if the truth is my brother was high, if the truth is my brother just lost his shit, that he pushed her in, that he held her under, or knows who did, then our father will twist that truth into a lie that will save my brother's ass. I say to my brother, what kind of guy, but my brother is covering his ears with his hands. I've only seen him do this once before. This isn't what I want to remember right now. Lunch in a restaurant with our father. A fancy room and we're way too small for this place. There are white cloths and white plates and vines growing on the walls. And because I'm young and because I already hate so much, I dare my brother to pour a glass of water over his head. Our father says to me, don't start. He says to my brother, don't. But my brother pours the water. It all happens so fast. I'm amazed by how wet his face is, how wet and flat his hair is. These ladies near us are laughing. And at first, we're laughing too. But then my brother covers his ears because he has to shut them out, these ugly old ladies laughing at him. Well, all of this is irrelevant. Our father dragging my brother outside, then me just sitting alone at that table me sitting there like a grown-up, staring these ugly old bitches down. The night I see the girl's ghost, it won't be that. It'll just be me too fucked up, and a shadow, a light, some peripheral thing moving about. But I'll feel the loss you feel when waking from a dream that's better than your life. So I'll scream, I mean, I'll scream like crazy, so the kids will throw me in. But I won't drown that night. I'll rise to the top the way a body can. Now I say to my brother what happened last night. Just tell us what happened, I say. This isn't one of our father's tricks. He has better tricks than being direct. I can feel our father's disappointment. I've totally fucked this up. Our father's face, you don't want to see it. And my brother's face, you don't want to see. Our father says, you're done. He points to the door, says, go. It's easy to imagine the guys staring into the water, to imagine the girls losing their shit, the summer cops not knowing where to start, then the real cops come and tell everyone, go the fuck home. But it's harder to imagine my brother, to imagine where he's standing, or how he's standing, or what he's wearing, or if he jumped in, if he pulled her out, if he pushed the wet hair from her face, if he pressed his mouth to her mouth, if he breathed as hard as he could, if she jumped back to life for a second. Our father says, I'm counting to three, but forget about that dumbass. I'm walking out of his study. I'll go to the boathouse and find my brother's friend. 
He'll be smoking with some guys. He'll mess up my hair like I'm a child. He'll pin me to the grass. I often imagine a life just wandering around. I imagine living in boats or in trees or riding trains across the world. And how hard I've tried since to have this life. How many times I've walked a street unknown and wanting to stay unknown. But how hard it is to fully shed the fucked up thing you've always been. To know you'll always be this fucked up thing no matter what. Dumb and drunk on the grass. Tracing shadows on his face. You whisper, tell me, into his ear. He whispers into your mouth. Thanks. <laughs> My other glasses, I can see the floor. Susan. <clears throat> Hello. Hi, Susan. I did not think you would ever write a novel. In fact, I think you said to me at Have like I, circa 2006, I'm never going to write a fucking novel. So yeah, I still I still maybe haven't written one. <laughs> okay. It became one, but I didn't write one originally. Say more. Um, is that a, so? This is your first question. I um, I did say that probably in those exact words, and I never really wanted. I think I didn't want to be a novelist, and I didn't want that pressure of writing some big book that um, followed one story. So I started this one thinking it was a linked collection and that it was all going to take place in the same town over a few summers with the same character. And that by not writing it as a novel, I wouldn't have to answer a lot of questions, that I could just keep it open and write stories and, you know, like fill in, hi, <laughs> I just saw someone I haven't seen in a while, and fill in, um, you know, whatever blanks I wanted to, but not be responsible for every piece of it. And um, I, I sent it in and to my agent who sent it to, my, to the press and the editors were like, we're really sorry to tell you, you've written a novel. And it was like a horrible, you know, thing to have to hear. And then I had to sort of deal with that fact and, um, and think about what that meant and like what I actually now did have to include, if anything. And, and I did leave it open. I, it, it turns out you can write a novel and not fill in all the blanks. Yeah, one of, th well, your, your book has triggered so many large questions for me as I am attempting to write my first novel, but going into it thinking I'm writing a novel, which is a real mindfuck. But one of the things that your book m is making me think about is that I feel entitled to a conclusion when I read a book. And I, you know, I think of myself as like a serious reader with, you know, more avant-garde than conventional taste, but like I still felt like that was something that the book was supposed to deliver. And when it didn't deliver, it was very thrilling. And I realized that- It's a spoiler. Yeah. It's a spoiler. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> what is the conclusion though? I said that the other night when someone else said a very similar thing in a yeah. reading. I was like, so, yeah, exactly. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like there isn't, the, there can't be a spoiler if there's, right. but at the same time, I mean, you've just heard, uh, I don't know if I could say that's like a representative chapter because they're so different and yet there are so many components that are shared in all the chapters. Um, but like it's gripping. It's not, you. you know, it's not like, um, 
you're watching some heroic character like you know conquer things you know like conquer his his plot yeah exactly <laughs> um but there's just none of that in the book and yet it's just it's like it's like a fast intense violent read it's wonderful I, I do want to comment on one part of that and I, you know I worried about that idea of like you know not concluding or not resolving something which I always feel a little a little cheated when the answer is handed to me um, mm. when I'm reading or when I'm watching a movie or anything really particularly um, because I think I know what it's going to be um, I'll start guessing and I think um, what if helped you get me, it right it's disappointing yeah it's disappointing I think yeah. some people feel great about getting it right yeah. but I just never do and I feel like um, you know part of it for me was switching in my mind what the question was right so if the question is what happened that night like you know did someone throw her in did someone drown her did she fall in was she drunk then you know if those are the questions you know um, then maybe you do have to deal with that or figure it out. But if the question is something completely different, um, for me, like, why do we care? You know, why are we obsessed with this narrative, you know, in general? Um, then that, it's not that it let me off the hook, it, it just sent me on a different path. I would say that immediately I felt that the central question of the book is, how does a girl deal with the fact when she finds out that she's fucking powerless? Right. I got it right? No, I think that's <laughs> I think that's one of a few I was thinking of. Yeah. 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 But yeah. yeah, that's the question. Right. Like, how do you deal with it? How does this narrator deal with it? And you can't resolve that no. <laughs> ever in a book because yeah. it's just a fact, it's ongoing. So what how do you resolve it? You write it again and then you write it again and you know, address it. Mm. This book is so good. Like really, I can't I'm so glad this is being recorded. Oh, I just rem I just remembered that. I remembered that when I said hi to the audience. <laughs> well, you definitely said fuck more than I could possibly say now, so I, I feel really relaxed. I think relaxed. you could do it. I think you can I, could pr me. I probably could, but thank you. Um, <laughs> something that I want to bring up that's also a little extraneous is that I know that while you were while you were working on this book you had kind of a dark night of the soul about the line. Could you characterize it as such? I just remember two or three years ago, or nine yeah, or ten I don't years ago, this, I don't I'm remember sure when right. it was, but you sent around one of your um, awesome emails where you ask like 20 or <laughs> we 40 people, <laughs> like, you know, what is, what is right, the right. deal with X, Y, and Z? Some, you know, element, some, something about the mechanics of writing. And then you wind up collecting all the, all the best handout. stuff and then you, and then you share it. And it's like, th that's some of my favorite stuff. But I remember that there was one about the line and right. I don't know, maybe you and I had had a conversation about like how you were trying to deal with it. Um, yeah. And I was wondering if you could speak about that. I mean, I was thinking I had to give a talk, um, at the Vermont Studio right. Center. And so I wanted to give a talk on the line because an email had come around. Um, it was just an email advertising um, some art magazine. And there was an article about about an art show. I don't even know if it was an article as much as it was maybe an ad, but um, maybe both. But it said in it something to the effect of lines are dangerous. And 
And I started out as a visual artist. And so the line in visual art, I always thought it was a different thing. You know, it's like a, a stroke of, you know, the pen or the brush or whatever you're using. Um, but it's not. You know, it's the same sort of, you know, marking of boundaries or, you know, what, however you want to envision it. There are so many ways. So I think I sent out, I, I often um, send these emails um, and I just want to know what other people think about stuff I guess other people do this through social media but I don't use social media so um I I was trying to figure out if lines were lines in text were dangerous um if they were like um borders you know like of countries or boundaries or things we couldn't cross if the fact that we call it a line you know it means that we can't cross it or we can't change it or it's setting up some kind of blockade. And so I was thinking about that because they do function that way and in other ways as well, but in visual arts that you draw a line and now you've got two sides, right? Um, so how was that How was that a thing in writing? And so I think I, I, I don't know if I was struggling with it so much as just wanting to interrogate it a little bit and open it up more because I think we we're always talking about the line, but we don't talk about it as a visual thing as much. You know, we talk about the words, the components of it. Do you mind if I talk about something that just happened upstairs? Oh God, that, that was a terrible way to pre preface this. But um, was I there for it? You were there. Yeah. Um, then no, it was just this this book that was ordered by somebody who very thoughtfully asked you yeah, to oh, right, sign, right. date, and then write the first line. And we we we. I'll just I'll say I I often you know just um, informally describe something as the first line of this or a line of that, but it's not. It's a sentence. Like I'm talking right. about sentences or. Um, you know, maybe when I'm talking about a poem in verse, it's actually accurate to describe something as a line. But like right. we say, a line, like a line is a, is a line of dialogue. But like when you're talking about written text, it it now you know now with this document, like I feel very uneasy identifying something as a line when it's not a line. And there are so many different kinds of lines and so so many different kinds of punctuation in this book. Um, there are like almost a dozen or more like coherent vocabularies of line and punctuation mm -hmm. that you use. And they're consistent within chapters. And, you know, often you see, um, you know, there's, there's one chapter that's just um, one paragraph long. And then there's another. It's a long paragraph. It's a long, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> you know, it's like a Thomas Bernhard novel, but instead of being 300 pages, it's like <laughs> 20. But, um, and then there are others that are um, lineated as though a um, you know a verse poem, but every line ends with a semicolon, which is like one of the most violent pieces of punctuation. Yes, because it it's like it's everything. It's like right. an ending and a connection. It's just like it's also not an ending. It's like yeah. a lack of commitment. Yeah, it's just it's every it's just the, it's every possible piece of punctuation. It is. It even looks like two of oh, them. It looks like shit, doesn't it? It's just so <laughs> ugly. I love it. Um, yeah, it's it's perfect for the the violence of that chapter. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, so this is a, this is another sort of um, side interest of mine in Susan Steinberg's work. But um, <laughs> some of you may know that she uh, has this fantastic essay on punctuation. Um, and I, I've never caught it an essay. She's never and it an essay. Yeah. I there's a student, a former student of mine in this audience who. Um, 
I taught last semester when I was teaching essayists, and I usually teach fiction writers, and I said, I have never written an essay. So now Sarah's saying that I have written an essay, so now I feel a little bit like a liar. Um, <clears throat> there's at least one student of mine, current student of mine in the audience, whom I um, gently instructed to read your essay. So, um, so take that. Okay. Um, but... Uh, you know, among other things, the essay is about um, Pan Am Flight 103, which was hijacked and crashed in Lockerbie, Scotland in 1980-something, and um, on that plane were two of your classmates. And you managed to write an essay about that that's really just an essay on the mechanics of writing, but it's also an Ars Poetica, and it's also... Uh, you know, an autobiographical admission that you started as a visual artist and then became something else. And um, you said it would be okay if I read excerpts from it. So (laughs) I'm going to actually do that. So this this is like a series of my favorite parts of of Susan's essay. uh, I'll just call it her thing. Okay. Um, I'm going to let the essayist in the audience decide... What it is. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> okay. This is about punctuation, about what it is to punctuate, and how I learned to punctuate, and why I have to. My paintings were then of planes exploding in the sky. They were of planes crashing into houses. I couldn't help it. Sometimes in crit, the teachers didn't know what to say, or what they said wasn't what I wanted to hear. But after a while, after looking at dozens of these paintings, they came around. One of my teachers referred to the shapes in my paintings as my cast of characters. Another referred to them as my alphabet. And in looking at them in these ways, I realized I had made up a language and that my teachers were trying to read it. I could then see the punctuation in this language. I mean, I could see how I was punctuating, how I I was controlling time and story with marks how a vertical line between objects did one thing and a horizontal line did another. So really this is about control, about an attempt to control devastation. I started writing because painting was not enough. Writing was more direct and it was faster and cheaper. It was something I could do in bed. But my writing for a long time was without any punctuation. It was just words slamming into other words which was something, considering. I have overused the semicolon because it links clauses that desperately want to be together. And in my stories, I often want to convey a certain type of intimacy, by which I mean a certain type of tension, a division. I could go on, but (laughs) I realize that's, yeah, no, it's an extraordinary piece of writing. It's really weird to hear it read. I like that. I like it a lot. uh, I mean, I like your reading of it. No, for me, it's like it's up there with <laughs> Joanne Beard's essay, The Fourth State of Matter, which I just, you know, I, I read it like every six months. Right. And I'm like, nope, it's still completely fucking amazing yeah. and infinite in its power. Um, so, yeah, so punctuation of the line, endings, powerlessness. Um, I was hoping to uh, create a segue between punctuation, specifically the semicolon, and violence, or to violence. Um, What are your thoughts on this topic? You know, it's funny. I don't know that I was like, I don't know if I was conscious of that connection um, when I started writing this. Um, But 
I, we were talking earlier tonight about um, a review of the book that came out that does talk about that. And I was like, whoa, that's really smart and <laughs> an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I mean, there is something about like relentlessness that I think um, can feel violent, that this sort of um, con something con just coming at you over and over again, even if it's not a bad thing. Um, and I wonder if that, if the semicolon, for, I use a lot of semicolons. So for the last reading I did two nights ago, I actually like checked to see how many there were because my editor and I were in conversation. He was curious. And there are, I believe it was, 1,918 in the book, which is oh, wow. like not even legal. Like I don't think <laughs> yeah. you're allowed to do that. That's just um, wrong. As opposed to the word the, which does not appear that much, not that many times. Oh, I thought you were going to say it and it doesn't, it doesn't appear a single At all. Time. <laughs> no, it's everywhere, like but it's, it's hardly. Like it's some experiment, experiment. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, the and maybe commas are the same amount. Yeah. Yeah. It's more, you know, average. But, um, but using them for me, it was much. It was a much bigger experiment in my previous book because that was the first time I was like, "What can I do with this?" And that's where this essay quotes that Sarah read comes from. I was asked to write this essay on something, and I chose punctuation. Um, and then I was like, "Oh, what would happen? Like just these nerdy experiments if I." linked two stories to each other with a semicolon in the middle, you know, I'm like, that's weird. And <laughs> no one's done that. And so I tried, you know, failed, but I, I was like, well, why, you know, maybe I sort of did that. Like, and if I put these two stories in the same connection, in the same collection, even if there's a story between them, maybe that echo will happen anyway. Um, or maybe we'll just know that the semicolon, the semicolon means they have to be closer. Um, but there's also a way it functions as just, um, you know, like I was saying, a, like an incompleteness. Like you're just, you're not going to resolve this. And I suppose that does speak to the violence in, in the book and the recurring, like repetitive nature of violence um, in this book and in my other books as well and in the next book that I'm writing and all the books I'll write forever, I have no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's an important point especially since there are at least two students in the audience, um, to just identify what I think is true of almost every writer that I admire or whose work I've engaged with deeply. Um, you know, William Maxwell, who I loved in my 20s, um, lost his mom when he was two, four, very young, eight, um, some number. <laughs> but every, every, every book, every novel he ever wrote, there's this missing mother. And, you know, it's not always like the tragic death, leaving a young child, but like, it, there's just, he right. never, you don't have to stop doing that. And so, no. um, yeah, I always am very grateful when somebody says like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna keep doing the same shit that I already did and I'm doing now. It's that, I mean, you didn't, just because you wrote a book about it doesn't mean it's yeah, done. done. It just means you wrote a book about it. and. Like you figured it out for that moment and you maybe advanced, you know, you got somewhere else with it. But all that does for me is open up another thing I have to write. Yeah. It's not over. It's yeah, just it's like more therapy. complicated. Yeah. I mean, I know analysis is supposed to have like a, an ending, like there's this formal moment where you end, but like therapy in, is like just in a forever. day or like over months. No, like you do it for like 11 years or something. And you're like, and well, done. I'm done. Yeah. Oh, like Kenneth Koch stopped stuttering and then he was done with analysis. Yeah, well, fixed his stutter, yeah. apparently. But 
Um, but you know, compared to therapy, like there's always something to have therapy. About. Yeah, because like your like your cab ride there could be stressful. Yeah. Oh my god. That's happened to me. Um, <laughs> I hesitate to bring up Alfred Hitchcock because <laughs> I just feel like we've had enough of male auteurs. No, I'm, I'm okay like, with it. Actually. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, the way in which I wanted to bring up Hitchcock was in just like one very small specific way, but um, the shower scene in Psycho, you know, <laughs> has been written about, uh, you know, already too much, but, um, you know, what, we, what, we're, what we're all kind of trained to know about the shower scene in Psycho is that you never see the weapon touching the woman's body and yet it's, you know, it's very violent. Like we, we think of that scene as like a very good cinematic representation of violence. But you see, you see pieces of stuff. You see her, you see Janet Lee's face in, in, in this, you know, mid-scream. Um, you know, you hear the shower curtain open. You see the blood and the bottom of the tub. But you don't like see, you know, the, the scene, you know, it's never like revealed. Like here's the, here's the violence. You just see these, um, you know, dreamlike pieces of it. And... Okay, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but um, I'll just say that um, reading your book left me really remembering that and just the, the eeriness of it. Of that, of that scene. Just, yeah, the kind of paradoxical way in which it's incredibly violent, but none of the so-called violence is really depicted. Yeah, I mean, well, part of the reason for that is because my narrator wasn't there yeah. that night and I wanted to stay true to that I I feel like a you know there's this I it was tempting to just figure it out anyway like to to tell that story like this is okay so this is the answer this is what happened but um there was a day that my editor asked you know do you know we were still working on edits and he said do you know what happened that night like and I was like, well, I don't, I wasn't there, you know, like I, I was with the narrator, you know, because she's the only lens I have. It's the story. She's telling the story. I'm telling the story through her. He's like, so you don't know though, like somewhere. And I was like, well, if I knew then I would know more than my narrator knows yeah. about a night that's so important to this story. So no, I'm, I'm going to say I don't, but what I do know is that the narrator has intuition, right? And she has talked to a lot of people and she's trying to get the story out in other ways. And she's even reenacting the night. So I feel like there comes a point where she knows something and maybe that's not the thing I reveal, right? That she's figured out something for herself and whether it's the truth, like what happened that night and she's right, or it's just some gut feeling about it. Um, feels like that doesn't feel it, does, it doesn't matter which it is you yeah. know um and so anyway but going back to your question actually by not placing her on the dock that night like she can only imagine the violence right and I think that is maybe why you're thinking of Hitchcock right and how like in some ways that's almost more terrifying um I mean, I, I hesitate to bring this up because I feel like I'll start crying, but you brought up the plane um, explosion. No, that I'll, I'm going to, it's fine. Okay. I can talk about it. And, um, and that, you know, that event changed the course of my entire adult life. And, um, you know, I wasn't there. And, but how many times have I seen it? 
in my head, you know? I mean, no one can, no one can talk about what happened in that moment, but people try, and I certainly have my version of it in my head, and that's the thing I wanna write most, right? Um, just like what we're, what, sur what we're left with, not just in moments like that, but in so many moments in our lives as survivors, you know, as the people who now write this story. Like, how can you use your imagination, as morbid as the scene might be, and the bits and pieces of things you hear, and and just and write into that fear of you know the you know that you can envision something that um, is that horrifying. Um, I don't know. I think that's just anyway. I don't know how I started that sentence, so I'm gonna put a semicolon there. <laughs> Leave it at that. That was great. Um, <laughs> I'm going to restrain myself from talking about a book that I wrote about 10 hours during which my friend was preparing to throw himself in front of a train. Um, why I'll why just, refrain? Uh, because I, I want to, you know, it's these people night. look this very smart. And, oh, right. That's you know, true. I just feel like we should include them. Okay. We'll talk about it over drinks or something. Great. Okay. That's her I way know, of does saying anybody, it. Yeah. Does anybody have any thoughts? I will answer you are, any oh, question. Okay, yeah, she will. Any She's question. really good at fielding questions. I, I'm not just saying that. That's true. I like answering why questions. Oh, why oh, she was, was I? Oh, I just didn't want to make this night all about me. But once I open my mouth and start talking about this, then you know, it, it's just I'm fine it kind of come out like a tidal wave. I don't like attention, so yeah, I'm actually true, good with But I with feel this. like I need to <laughs> impel you to receive attention right now. Okay, cool. I'll take yeah. it then. Charming, self-deprecating joke, but <laughs> to like turn the Susan Steinberg like question about like what is the line, what is excess? Like, I'm just kind of curious, like, how do you feel about ugliness in literature, and especially as a virtue? Like, yeah. Of course, hearing your words, beautiful and rhythmic, and just like lovely prose. I'm curious what the ugliness is for you. Why you wrote that? I mean, I think the I think the ugliness for me is always in the content, right? And so then. I'm not going to write towards something that doesn't have a conflict or doesn't have, you know, something that I'm scared of or, um, you know, that I actually want to avoid writing. Like, I, that's the stuff I want to just try to get closer to as hard as it is and, you know, as, you know, much as I can distract myself from it in my life. But I, I, I was asked a similar question at, at my last reading and... Um, by the editor who I did say when I turned in the book, I'm afraid it's not ugly enough. And and he was like, no, it's definitely ugly enough. And I was like, oh, good, I'm so glad. And um, But I was afraid, as I was when I was a painter, that you know, you're writing about this really hard, really dark stuff that, um, or painting about it, that you know, you wouldn't, if it didn't exist, you maybe wouldn't need to write at all. You know, maybe I would just have a much more practical job. I must, I must have other skills. Maybe I don't know if I do or not. But I, but I'm just compelled to keep working through these hard issues through this. And um, and yet, you want your sentences to sound good, and you want 
you know, people to move on to the next sentence. And with painting, I wanted the surfaces to look nice and, you know, just draw the, a person toward it, you know, so they could keep reading it. And there's always, it's, this is what I didn't say at the last reading that I wished I'd said. So we need these two podcasts to be together somewhere on the internet. Um, I feel like it's really about finding that balance between what's beautiful, you know, and what's absolutely repellent, just hideous. And it is so hard to do that. But that, I think that's just what art is, right? Like, I don't know if it goes much deeper than that for me. And, you know, so for, you know, I'm writing about infidelity. I'm writing about a potential murder. I'm writing about, like, friends being mean to each other. And just, like, just nothing in it is necessarily, and I shouldn't say nothing, but the main sort of um, components of it aren't, aren't pretty, right? And, but, but I wanted, I still wanted to sound some, like something you want to hear, <laughs> you know, even if. So was it that you were distrusting your instinct toward making it sound like something you could bear to It hear? was part that, that I was like, you know, I get a little rhymey and I have to cut that and watch that I'm yeah, not doing why? that too much. I just don't want to go overboard with it, you know, so I just read aloud until I catch I, you should see what it looks like, you know, before you no, actually get it. No, I know, you're it. like infamous for like making the biggest mess possible and then distilling it. Yeah, and it's pretty awful. But then as I'm fine tuning, it's like, oh, this word sounds better than that word. Or like, I like ending a sentence here. And it's like, does that make it pretty? And if that makes it pretty, does that dilute the content in some way? And how do you, just how do you achieve that balance? And punctuation does help me through that. It's like, well, what if I say it five times with semicolons threaded throughout it? Like, that might be uglier, you know? That might be um, that relentlessness I was talking about. But um, but I do struggle with, with that. And it, this one, I think it is ugly enough. And I now, I've heard it is anyway. People have told me, and I'm very happy about that but um I just yeah I've always I've just never wanted to be like oh she wrote this you know beautiful thing or you know it just doesn't I don't know there's a difference between beautiful and pretty though too true right yeah true like pretty is a little bit gross yeah I know now that makes me want to write pretty uh yeah but like when your book is described as beautiful even if it's by like I, I don't think I would ever call a book of yours beautiful. Like, I think he would take that as, like, a gross, um, <laughs> not an insult, but just, it's just not the right. It has nothing to do with what you're working for or toward. Yeah, and I, I felt like, too, I was I was being too kind to the reader um, in at this times. Bo- in this book? Well, earlier in the, in the writing process, I was like, I just think I'm being too nice. Like, I'm not giving enough, I'm not showing enough of, the hard stuff and mm-hmm. so in revision I open things up a little bit more you know as terrifying as that was so that's another way of answering it that's great Dylan it was the very last thing I did yeah so it ended with that uh, that section ended with that those last two lines mm-hmm. and I knew those last two lines would always end that section, but that section wasn't the end of the book um, for a while. There was another section that ended the book, and and we went back and forth. And one of the editors, um, this was Ethan, mm-hmm. was like, "I think you need to move this story to the end." And it really made it more of a linear 
a linear book, which terrified me because I'm so non-linear. Um, but, um, but then I had to rework what came before those last two lines because there just wasn't enough there. I never really returned to the scene on the dock. I, it, it, went, it, was, it, it had to do less as a piece that came three stories earlier, three sections earlier. And suddenly, at, as the ending, I had to like figure out like, how do I do this without having everything come out, you know, as like an echo of what happened before, you know, it was just really hard. So I sat and stared at that last page for a summer. Yeah. <laughs> God, I love knowing that that was one of the things that Ethan did. Yeah, that was Did Ethan. too, did for this book. He did exactly the same thing for one of my books and exactly the same thing for one of Maggie Nelson, well, for the Argonauts and for yeah. ongoingness. Yeah, he can really find that that ending a lot earlier. And Steve, my editor, was, um, I was just reading things aloud to him. Why are you two-timing with Steve and Ethan? Because, yeah, no, Steve is my editor. Okay. Yeah, all right. I can yeah. explain Th all that of was that. It's no, question. it's a really interesting thing that record. happened. I think my previous book was um, Steve's first mm -hmm. book. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Which is a really strange first book for God, an editor. Yeah. Now it makes me like him even more. More questions in the back. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I always, I would get into this these discussions with a couple of my colleagues at the university about, like, whether form creates content or content creates form, you know, like, what comes first? And I was like, why are we talking about it like this all the time? Like, well, you know, one taught formal poetry, so the form really dictates the content, and one taught something, you know, like, contemporary American lit, and maybe that's not always the case. But... For me, it's just, they're kind of neck and neck. Like they're all one's leading for a while, and then the other one takes over, um, because they do just create each other. You know, like the content dictates what form it needs to be, and the form starts to is content. You know, it starts to create content just by the way it looks on the page and and the pacing and all of that. But I wanted, even though I'm writing the same book over and over, I wanted formally to experiment more. So. Um, I think what I've done is I've created forms for myself in um, in fiction because we don't have any. You know, there's one shape and it's that. 
right? And it does not fit every story and it's the shape we were taught to use. And like it has never really worked for me. It, it, it's in there, it's in the stories and on some level, but I've always needed to just go beyond that. And so, um, so I guess in my previous books, I created a few forms that I now feel like I'm allowed to reuse and, and then ask, well, like, what do they do this time? That's different, you know, or like, how does this form do something different when it's applied to this kind of content, you know, that's not as, you know, maybe frenetic as that story that you brought up. Um, and, you know, what can I do with indenting and what can I do with like a more standard form, you know, if I break that up in some way. So and there are new forms in this that I don't think I have in the previous book. Um, but I wanted to spread them out, too. So for me, it's about trying it on. And, you know, I'm going to write this in just one sentence paragraphs that are just like lines across the page. And it kind of people think it looks like poetry. Um but why do it once, you know? So I've done it like three times and it's different each time. And so is that answering your question kind of? Yeah, so I just wanted to like create something for me to use. I'm always like trying to do that because I feel like we're so limited, like unlike poets who can say, I'm gonna write this in the form of a pantoum and see what happens. And it's like, yeah, oh my God, what a swamp. luxury. Yeah. Okay, I, though I thought maybe you would. Okay. There's like a there's a dark sense of humor in the section of the other section of the book. But I'm curious at how you think about humor as like a dimension of your work. Like, can you read it for rhyme? Are you ever thinking, oh, that's too funny? Or is there ever like, I need to start writing this up here? Like, it's in general. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm. I never. I, I said this at a reading recently. Like, I never try to be funny in my work. Like, that's not ever part of the plan. Like, if I tried to write something funny, it would never work. And I, so I, I just couldn't write humor. You know, I don't think I could anyway. But I also think that humor is incredibly important. So I don't know. I don't know if my work is funny until the audience laughs. And then when that happens, I'm like, oh great, that was funny, bonus. But I think they're usually laughing because I've given them a break more than because it's actually funny. It's just, it's maybe an easier moment, you know, or like a character says something that is understand, you know, more sort of understandable or something we hear all the time, or it feels maybe um, lighter. You know, so I I don't, yeah. I mean, I actually really have started to enjoy it when uh, the audience thinks something is funny because I'm always surprised by where those moments are. Because when I read my stuff aloud to myself, sometimes I'm like weeping. And I'm like, oh no, the whole the audience is going to cry. And then they're just like, you know, dying laughing. And I'm like, oh, they're either really mean people or I'm hilarious. So neither is good. Why choose just one? Huh. Yeah, or both. Or both. Um, so yeah, I wish I could just write humor, like just set out to do that, but I think it would be really hard. Lucrative? Huh? Oh, right. Yeah, and I would also be incredibly wealthy. Maybe that's the skill I have to hone. Other questions? I don't know. That was kind of a good non-conclusive conclusion. Or... <laughs> 
or maybe another? Nadia, here's a question. Oh, great. Right. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I really only ever wanted to write short stories. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm That's happy. my student. She's oh. great. Thanks. <laughs> what do you think? We can I, do that. Thank you so that. much for coming. Thank you, Susan. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.